So ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Welcome to the Wellness Cast. I'm Joe Bankman, professor at Stanford Law School and also a psychologist. My partner in these podcasts is Sarah Weinstein, lawyer turned therapist and external director of the Wellness Project here. Our guest today is Heidi Brown, litigator and law professor and author of the new book, The Introverted Lawyer. If you're an introvert or shy or anxious, the book will speak to you, whatever your profession. The book can also help the rest of us understand the power of introverts. Welcome, Heidi. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, I'm Sarah Weinstein. Heidi, welcome to the Wellness Cast. As a fellow introvert, I loved your book. I am so glad you wrote it. I only wish you had written it in the mid-90s when I was in law school. It certainly would have helped me immensely. Uh, This ties in very nicely with your book. One of our goals for the podcast is to normalize the difficult emotions we all experience. And to make that real, we begin by asking our guests to share a hard moment. Great. So I've had many hard moments as a quiet law student and litigator and as a law professor, but I'll share one that has has stuck with me over the years. As a young litigator, I worked in a construction litigation firm and the supervising attorney assigned me to handle a series of depositions in New Orleans that lasted about a year. And I was very prepared for each of these depositions. I had written lengthy outlines, but my nerves really got the best of me, even in preparing. I used to feel very sick the night before each of these depositions. And in one particular um, aspect of this case, I was representing um, the plaintiff in the lawsuit, and we had about five or six attorneys on the other side of the case, and every one of them would come to the deposition. And the head attorney for the the list of co-defendants was rather intimidating fellow, and he used to enjoy sitting across the deposition table from me, and he would have an unlit cigar in his mouth and, and be very intimidating in the way he would stare me down during my questions, and he objected to nearly all of my questions. And I tried to really stick to my guns and just proceed with my outline. But one day, he could tell that I was particularly nervous. I was blushing, and and I was a little bit rattled. And he and his co-defendants, the lawyers representing the co-defendants, rolled a television set into the deposition room. And they kept it on mute, but they watched a baseball game during my deposition. And at the time, I was just so nervous about how to handle it. I wasn't really sure whether I could demand that they roll the TV out. So I just resolved to keep going with my outline. I asked my questions, but my face was on fire. I was blushing worse than I probably ever had before. I got through the deposition. I got a lot of good information out of the deponent, but I felt extremely sick afterwards. And that moment has stayed with me really for another decade (laughs) since then. Oh, Heidi, I have heard many stories about challenging depositions, but this one ranks up there for sure. And I think I'm picturing you in that room, you know, with the personality type that you describe in your book, thinking how hard that must have been for you. But on the other hand, 
Um, you know, it was actually your personality that allowed the deposition to go forward. Someone else might have stormed out or created havoc in the room, and you ended up getting more from the deponent than a person like that would have. So we, we see the strengths of the introvert that you talk about so well in your book. Um, and another thing you do very well in the book is to distinguish between introversion, shyness, and social anxiety, three categories that I think often are combined or confused. And I love the chapter in your book is titled Shades of Quiet. And I wonder if you might talk about the differences between those three. Sure. Yes. I feel like this is a really important thing for quiet law students and lawyers to understand because society tends to lump those labels together. But when we really look at the distinctions, we start to see, oh, you know, am I introverted or do I have a case of shyness or even social anxiety? So introversion is really a very productive way that many of us process energy and all the competing stimuli around us. So introverts process um, information and ideas inwardly. They do a lot of inward reflection, and then when they're ready, can express themselves and communicate outwardly. But they also definitely need to retreat back inward to generate new energy. Introverts can be very capable socially, but then need to retreat to solitude or quiet to rekindle that new energy to engage again. Shyness and social anxiety are really rather different. Um, they represent a fear of judgment or criticism in social interaction, and that can stem from past experiences or traumatic events that are replayed in our heads in a stressful moment. So introverts can be not non-shy and engage very skillfully in social interaction, but still need to retreat inward, whereas shy and socially anxious individuals almost have a harder time stepping into that social interaction in the first place. Introversion and anxiety are different traits, but sometimes they go together. Heidi, it sounds like you had both. I imagine it must be hard for someone with those traits to act like a domineering litigator where your role model is a guy with a cigar. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. You have one wonderful description in your book. And you're a high-powered lawyer. You have an office in Manhattan. And you're looking over the waterfront. And uh, you write, every day I stared out the windows at the boat circling the Statue of Liberty and wished I could trade places with the boatmen. Yes, that's another experience that has really stayed with me over the years. Kind of growing up as an introvert and a socially anxious individual, well-meaning mentors and some more challenging personalities in my past kept saying mantras like, just do it, just do it and you'll over it or fake it till you make it. And I kept trying to do that. And at one point I found myself, as you just described, in an office midway up in Tower 2 of the World Trade Center. And I was trying to fake it. I was working hard. I was writing briefs. But I was really stressed and anxious every day in that job, trying to be something I was not when I really wanted to just research and write, write my briefs, think about the law, and interact when I was ready. And so every day I would look out my window and see these sailboats circling the Statue of Liberty. And I just recall wishing I was on one of those sailboats instead of being in this office where I felt constantly prodded to fake my way instead of being a quiet, authentic lawyer. 
You know, I think we, many of us, um, maybe all of us have moments where we really want our external world to reflect more accurately who we are on the inside. And I'm wondering if you could, you describe it so well in your book, just give our listeners a sense of how you began to embrace your strengths as an introvert and what that process was like for you to become more authentic over time. Yes. So after 9-11 and kind of processing changes in my life, I sat down and I wrote a litigation book for first-year lawyers to try to really share everything I had learned in my the first half of my legal career. And I realized I'm happiest when I'm writing. I'm happiest when I'm quietly working independently and thinking and expressing myself through the written word. And I finally honored that part of myself. So I used writing to help me amplify my speaking voice. And I allowed myself the time to write and think. And then when I was ready, I would start to engage more in oral communication, but still allowing myself to use my written notes a lot more than I ever had before. And when I started teaching, I transitioned from law practice into law teaching about eight years ago and noticed my best writers were often my quietest students. And again, I found myself honoring that in myself and then helping my students realize that those were their quiet strengths as well. And that's when I realized that empathy for others in similar circumstances or different circumstances and also being vulnerable about our own experiences made a huge difference in helping law students find their way. Throughout my legal career, I was worried I wasn't cut out for it. And through finally being authentic, I realized, no, I am cut out for this. I have gifts. I just need to use them in my authentic way instead of trying to force a persona that just wasn't me. One of the the things I like so much, Heidi, is you you describe how those same techniques playing to your strength could even work a little bit as a negotiator. You didn't have to be with the guy with the cigar. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, in the negotiation context, the way I was trained at my construction litigation firms, I thought I had to mirror the aggressive, assertive approach that many of my mentors and also my counterparts across the table were displaying. But once I started tapping into who I really was as an advocate, I took my quiet approach in negotiation and I used my writing skills to help me get my points across. So instead of taking the lead on arguing, I would take the lead on writing out a proposed term sheet or being the lead person to draft the first round of contract terms. And then during conversations that got a little heated, I, again, just allowed myself to stay calm, be quiet, but stick to my written notes and convey my points in a very measured manner, which I wasn't used to doing. I was used to trying to mirror everyone else. But when I stopped doing that and stuck to my guns, people were surprised. And if I did face-to-face negotiations, I was constantly blushing. So my poker face is not a good one, Um, but I just kept going back to my written outline and believing that what I was doing was the right thing and whether that showed in my in my red face or being a little overheated in the moment physically 
I just kept going and I kept telling myself, do this your way. And it worked. Heidi, in addition to to valuing the strength of uh, introversion, you outlined some techniques to reduce anxiety. And one of the approaches you outlined that I found most moving and brave was to simply say the inner dialogue out loud to deprive it of its power. You worry about blushing, you blush. And instead of keeping those worries inside, when that happens in class, you write that you say things such as, okay, I'm turning red right now and there's nothing I can do about it. So I'm gonna keep on going. Yes, that was a huge revelation for me when I started doing that. So when litigating in the deposition scenario or negotiating, I always wore turtlenecks or scarves or tried to hide my neck or my face with my hair. But when I started teaching, I was constantly overheated. So that strategy just was not gonna work. And I read an amazing book by Erica Hilliard and she framed blushing in a way I'd never heard before. She said, basically a blush is life coursing through us and we just need to embrace it and be proud and happy that we're alive. I decided I'm gonna try that technique. And the next few times I started blushing, I told myself in my mind, okay, this is life coursing through you, you gotta own it. And I found myself saying that out loud. Um, I was teaching a class of evidence students to 135 students and my blush was in full force. And I simply said, wow, you know, that's a tough evidentiary question. Let me think about that for a minute. I know my face is turning red, don't worry, don't be concerned, you know, it'll go away and I'm just gonna keep plugging ahead. And some of my student blushers in the room smiled and nodded and a few other students kind of chuckled or laughed in a positive way, which I chose to believe. And I kept going and it went away in a couple minutes. My strategy now is to know in my mind, it's gonna go away. Yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, people can see me. Some people might think it's weird, but I keep going. And it, that strikes me as like a double taboo. You're you're saying out loud something that is indicative of anxiety, and you're mentioning what that might do to your body. When you did it, how did the class go? The class goes so much better than I could have imagined because we've created this new bond this vulnerability bond. And I found that after I've admitted or confided situations like that, that I've experienced or that are happening to me in the moment, students have come up to me afterwards and said that they blush too, or they've shared different physical manifestations of stress that they worry that people can see. And then we, we open up a dialogue. And from the substantive aspect, no, I haven't felt that they disrespect me. In fact, I felt that I'm able to get through to my students on a, on a deeper level sometimes because we can combine the substance with the reality of the anxiety of practicing law. I think that is such a wonderful technique. It shows the power of authenticity in the classroom and you're serving as a model for your students, which often is the best way to learn. I do that with my clients sometimes too, where I share with them that I'm conflicted about what I want to say. And I just, you know, I think it lets people see that we're not, you know, we don't always know exactly what to say or what to do and it's okay. And I know in addition to that technique, you um, explore other techniques in your book. And could you just talk about a few of those as well? Sure. So 
For me, in conquering my own public speaking anxiety and also tapping into the strengths of introversion instead of trying to suppress them and fake extroversion, for me, the study has really been mental and physical. So I combine mental and physical reflection exercises with then mental and physical action plans. And so mentally, I constantly am trying to listen to the negative messages that immediately pop up when I'm confronted with a performance-oriented scenario, but then reframe those in a very practical, realistic, positive light. And at the same time, because the physicality of, of our stress and anxiety is such a huge part of it as well, I've had to learn how to be really mindful of what's happening to my physical body. What am I doing that's making my anxiety worse? Am I closing myself up? Am I hunching down? Am I fighting the blush? And, and then again, reframing the physical stance to open up, breathe better, let the blood and oxygen and energy flow in a positive direction. But it's a constant checklist of mental and physical reflection and action that I find myself and I share this with my students, having to go through that checklist on a daily basis. And it works. It absolutely works. I wanted just to ask kind of the obvious question here, but what is this podcast like for you? What has it been like to do this? We prepared a little bit for it. But well, if you could see me right now, I'm in full blush mood. <laughs> um, it's always anxiety producing for me, but once I settle in to the moment, I'm happy and this topic is really important to me and it's something I'm probably most passionate about in my life and so I, I'm happy to be talking about it but physically I constantly while we're talking am reframing my physical stance to uncross my legs uncross my arms and breathe and ignore the fact that my face is flushed and keep going. Heidi we've had a host of technical problems to deal with in this podcast People were talking in the hall of your law school, for example. Did that make it more difficult? Yes, yes. And part of what happens to very inward focusing people, whether you're introverted or shy or socially anxious, is that you take some of that those scenarios on and feel responsible. And I am going through in my head right now what I, I could do to avoid some of the, um, the noise and all of that. And I have to tell myself, you're doing, you're doing fine. You didn't do anything wrong. Keep going. This is important. You have something important to say. And it's just an example of how in every scenario, if, if you're the type of person who has a tendency to jump to negative thinking, to constantly have to, I, I call it the stop, drop, and roll. You know, when I when I feel like, oh no, there's a noise outside the room, or there's an echo, or things that we're trying to fix technically, I have to stop my my slippery slope and go, okay, now we're all working together, we're solving the problems, keep going. Because otherwise, you think it's your fault. Yes, whether you're introverted or shy or socially anxious, a lot of the the negative perceptions or feelings we have towards being a quiet person, I have found in my own self-study can be tied to guilt and shame, which is what we were just talking about, feeling responsible for things that, that really you have no control over. And the problem is that a lot of times the way we, we think we're helping 
law students or junior attorneys by telling them to fake it and just be tough and you can do it and just get over it. We're never dealing with those instinctual emotions that pop up. And that's what we really need to focus on to help us amplify our voices authentically. Heidi, your book is, it's deeply personal, but it's also almost a how-to manual for people in your situation. You're very direct about techniques that work. Sarah, I'm struck by how much Heidi's approach mirrors a cognitive behavioral approach I use. You work to reframe negative thoughts and then armed with that reframe, go into the world. Oh, I don't know, Joe. I was actually thinking that I was impressed with how her technique used a psychodynamic approach because she spoke earlier about looking at her guilt and shame, the historical sources of her anxiety. We won't make you resolve that dispute, Heidi. Instead, we'll move into our last segment where we ask you to share a wellness technique. But before we do that, I want to read a little bit of a very interesting email we received from a 24-year-old listener in Austin, Texas, who decided to try out Dr. Anna Lemke's technique of putting away the cell phone for 24 hours. This person writes that, I was astonished at how my hands would involuntarily move in search of my phone. After the initial anxiety, I began to feel free. It was a lovely 24 hours of brain reset and will do it as often as I can. The person also noticed when out to lunch with friends that the friends were on their phones for 70% of the time, taking pictures of their food, posting updates and texting, living for an image presented through a screen and disregarding the company of those around them. Thank you for taking the time to write to us. We too were very interested in the effects of, as you say, people being on social media and their phones 70% of the time and hope to have a wellness cast on that topic in the near future. We're just delighted that you tried out Dr. Lemke's technique and found it helpful. And Joe, were you able to try out Dr. Walzer's technique from last month to have a mindfulness break? And if so, how was it for you? I downloaded one of the free apps Robin recommended. It was full of audio exercise. I was familiar with some, so I chose one I wasn't familiar with kind of ominously entitled, Emotional Discomfort. It had me sit with a hard thought without trying to solve it or avoid it. The app suggested that afterwards I'd feel more self-compassion. And did you? I did feel a little more self-compassion. It seemed like it'd be okay to live with that thought. I could handle it. Hmm, That's so interesting to bring up an emotionally difficult or complex thought in a very deliberate way and then sit with it. I think I might like to try that too. I did not try out any of Robin's apps that she recommended, but I have had a regular-ish meditation practice now for several years, and I do find that it keeps me grounded and definitely helps me stay present in challenging moments that arise. I also begin some of my sessions with clients with five minutes of meditation for those who want it, and so I get a couple more minutes in there myself too. How about for you, Heidi? We've already asked you about techniques you use for anxiety, but do you have other techniques that you use just to maintain your general well-being that you might share with our listeners for them to try out this week? Yes. So as I mentioned before, I'm constantly combining the mental and physical strength techniques uh, on a daily basis. And one thing that I found that has been really useful for me is The author, Julia Cameron, recommends morning pages, and it's three pages of just stream of consciousness writing. I do that literally every morning before I even had a cup of coffee. I bought myself a journal with a light bulb on the front of it. It's cheerful. It's happy. 
I sit down, I light a candle in my apartment, and I write whatever is in my mind just to get the brain clutter out of my head that I've been thinking about all night or that I woke up worried about. And near the end of those three pages, I reframe my day and remind myself if I'm worried about a particular piece of writing that I'm worried about perception, I'll remind myself you worked really hard on this, you're doing the best job you can, keep working, keep going, just be yourself today. And then at the same time on the physical front, each day, almost every day of the week, I make myself do some sort of strenuous physical exercise. Because for me, taking classes like boxing classes, for instance, have made a huge difference in helping me power through stressful performance anxiety scenarios. So I try to combine those mental stress relief techniques and the physical at the same time. And I honestly try and do both of those every day. So Sarah, can you imagine taking a boxing class? I can't say I've ever tried a boxing class, but I'm intrigued. I think I sort of do the opposite of boxing because I take 90 minutes of yoga several days a week, but it actually has the same effect on me. It gives me a renewed sense of calm, and I often do some of my best thinking during those classes. The, the boxing class actually taught me that I wasn't breathing because the first one I ever took, I sort of passed out. And when I came to, the boxing teacher and the manager of the gym came over and summed it up and said, you just forgot to breathe. And it was really because I was trying so hard to act cool or act tough. And I realized that all I really need to do is breathe consciously and be in the moment. And then I'll last through the 45 minutes. So it was a great learning experience for me about just the simplicity of breathing and knowing that if you just do that and put one foot in front of the other, you can make it all the way through. Heidi, thank you so much for appearing on the show. Yes, thank you for talking with us today and being so open, Heidi. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. As always, if anyone would like to send us an email or access the resources from this podcast, including how to find Professor Heidi Brown, please see our website at www.law.stanford.edu backslash wellness project. Thanks for listening and please tune in again next time for another episode of the Wellness Cast.